Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Edward, founding and managing partner of Buy Generation Ventures. Launched in 2006, BGV has managed over 250 million euros across four funds. They invest in medical and healthcare innovations that have high potential to positively impact patients. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Edward, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to host BGV again in this podcast. And no pressure, but Daniela, your fellow partner, was one of the top listened episodes. So you have kind of a milestone to achieve. How are you today? Well, thank you for having me. And we'll, we'll make that an internal competition, uh, no doubt. <laughs> uh, see how that will work out. I love that. I assume that it will be very difficult to match that. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I'm sure it'll be a great episode either way. Edward, to those out they're listening to us today that don't know who you are. Could you give us a quick rundown? How the hell did you end up in venture? I started out as a biochemist and biochemical engineer and then decided not to do my PhD, but to immediately jump into industry, which I did. I worked for a company called Chiron, US-based biotech that had a facility here in Amsterdam. Later moved to uh, Johnson & Johnson, the Janssen pharmaceutical part in Beersen, Belgium. And after a few years uh, moving from or in the development side from uh, project management to in licensing, I got the opportunity to, somebody asked me if I would be interested to step in a, in a new venture biotech company that was set up here in the Netherlands, which I did. And I was able to exit that company, sell the assets in 2005. And then by sort of chance, I obviously had met some of the folks active in the, in the VC community. One of those organizations was private equity branch of AB and Embro that had the life sciences team, very eloquently they called themselves AB and Embro Life Sciences. And they asked me if I would be interested to work with them on setting up an early stage oriented fund that uh, in biotech in the Netherlands. The reason was that they saw all this exciting science, but they didn't see the translation of that in startups and companies that they could invest in. And for them, one of the solutions would, would be to build a fund that it would specifically or specialize on building these early stage companies. And that's what we set out to do. So I would say if you would summarize it, it's more or less coincidental that I ended up in this industry. I, I love the creativity of, of naming in these very tech, tech areas. Anyway, I think it's also <laughs> kind of worthwhile giving some airtime to the origin story of BGV or Biogeneration Ventures, right? You just hinted to it to the beginning, how it started, but I'd love you to, to deep dive and also, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think BGV is on its fourth fund or something like that. So What's it's been a while. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while. I'm correct. sure there's a lot of learnings, a lot of failures, a lot of successes. So just give us again, the quick rundown of from inception to today. Yeah. the main milestones of that, because I think that's super cool. Yeah, I mean, the story started really with the team of ABN Embro. They reached out to some of the universities here in the Netherlands and asked them, listen, are you interested to work with us to build a fund on early stage to spin out new companies out of your institutions? And all of them were interested, but none of them wanted to really put money if they didn't get the guarantee that money would actually flow back into their organizations. So it was a bit of a difficult story, but then there was also some government money available through an initiative here in the Netherlands called the NGI, the 
Netherlands genomics initiative that was specifically meant for what they called with a beautiful English word, uh, valorization. And together with an initial commitment of the bank of this NGI and particular Leiden University that did want to commit, we were able to conclude, okay, we have sufficient cornerstone investments to build a fund. And this is how we set out to start the fund. So this was still in the context where we were working with from basically the ABN Emerald offices at the time, and this was early 2006, getting approval for the fund to start and meantime trying to fundraise with other organizations. And we managed in total to raise about a little bit less than 20 million euros for the first fund at the time. No European investment Can fund I money. just yeah. interrupt you sure. there, Edward? Because that was 06, right? As you said. Yes. Yeah? And at the time, and this is a question because I wasn't in the industry at the time. Mm-hmm. At the time, I guess you didn't see a lot of 20 million euro VC funds, right? Now it's getting common and we have a word for it. We call them micro funds, <laughs> right? But that's happened, what, in the last three years, I, I guess? But back in the day, this wasn't common. Am, am, am I right in saying that? No, no, that's it, indeed. It, it was actually a period of in time where you saw that there were a couple of initiatives getting started. So I think if you look back, we started together with two or three other funds that are still out there, like uh, Tuya Capital, but also funds that are not no longer there. There were funds, at least here locally in the Netherlands, um, formed by universities themselves, uh, funds of maybe, let's say, 10 million. Yeah. So there was, I think, a general idea that something needed to be done and uh, in order to get more companies started in this sector, in the life sciences sector, and that there was an opportunity to also invest in these companies. But it was a very early days. On top of that, the existence of tech transfer offices was also completely new, right? So at, at universities, the original mandates for researchers was typically not spin out a company or even file IP. And that was only slowly being started at the time. So we only, when we started the fund, I think also what we saw is a couple of these, most of the universities uh, that are linked to medical centers or started to build their own tech transfer offices. There were a lot of growing pains along the way. I think we're still maybe not completely there, but we are, you know, far removed from, from that period in time today when when that, this was all really in the beginning, and as you'd say, a twenty million, around twenty million fund was not that bad in terms of size, and, and we set out to do a very broad uh, mandate in both biotech, but also in medical device and diagnostics. Yep. So it was quite a broad and maybe a little bit ambitious play uh, at the time. <laughs> what about you know you were talking about in the beginning of your answer, you know, talking about working with universities and R&D centers and and kind of them having these kind of concerns and whatnot. And I couldn't help but think of my experience in life sciences, which is limited, and it is connected mostly to raising a fund in that space in Southern Europe. And obviously at the time, our thinking was, you know, it's all about the IP. It's really, you know, we need to get access to these deals. We need to make sure that we're seeing every single one of the best deals. And we could easily map out the relevant R&D centers, the relevant universities. It's not that hard to know who's doing the, the best science. What is hard is making sure that we have access in the right way. And so in our case, the way we managed to get kind of this ecosystem and these different stakeholders working together was to give actually special incentives to these kind of, you know, exclusive to some extent partnerships where we had like right of first refusal on stuff, but they also got some carry. So I'd love to ask 
your learnings and thinking and process in this first fund of getting these players involved with you in a way that you know you were sure that you were getting what you had to get to do good investments and return the money? Our, as I said, uh, Leiden University was the university that ultimately ended up investing in the fund. And I think what we set out to do with them is collaborate closely with their growing organization. But we did not have any kind of a exclusive deal or a right of first refusal or kickbacks or whatever, anything. So there's a very clean and transparent collaboration where we will be looking at some of the deal flow, advising them, telling them, well, this may be interesting, this may not be interesting. And in that conversation, you can then easily identify what are the interesting projects that you are uh, you may want to see if you can build a company around. And over the years, this university has been investing in all of our funds and they apparently have seen sufficient results for themselves that they keep on doing this. So we strive to do the same with other universities. We don't make a real distinction. Of course, if people know you, it's easier and you need to build those relationships. But we go out to tech transfer offices still today to talk to the to the managers there and see if we can be of help, if we can help them in selecting the best possible projects and then hopefully indeed find those little diamonds in the rough that we can build companies around in terms of, you know, scientific breakthroughs that they have. At the same time, we monitor scientific publications and we also approach scientists directly if we see something cool going about. My experience is actually that if you you have funds that make these kind of special relationships and, and write the first refusals with, with certain academic institutes, the question is always if that institute then comes to us who do not have that particular agreement with, why would we look at that? You know, what is, is that the second rate That's project? Uh, yeah. And so that makes, to me, and we've always said to parties, we don't want any kind of exclusivity with you guys. We just want to have a collaborative relationship where we try to help each other. And yeah, we may sometimes be late on a deal. That's a possibility. That's the risk we take. But as long as we nurture the relationship, that typically doesn't happen. So we do see... And I think that certainly goes for the Benelux and most of Germany. We see most of all the deals that come about. I would love to continue along this vein of how to work with universities and TTOs and, and a research centers. And we will return to it in just a sec. But I would just, even though we have had Daniela on and some of our listeners will have heard about BGV then, I think we should just go back and make sure that everyone is up to speed and understand how good BGV is and why what you've built is quite amazing because you are one of the absolute top performers in European mentors. So for sure, it's worthwhile asking you to just give us a rundown of what the hell is BGV. We started the fund with the focus on early stage. And that was at, in 06, um, David, as we just uh, discussed, was not maybe a, a very proven business model at all in terms of is this actually going to generate some money are you actually able to to generate interesting companies maintain a, a meaningful stake and create significant exits and i think we have shown indeed over the years that is possible we do have a special uh, setup in the way that we're organized so as this was a initiative originally from the abn embro team that later became forbian we still collaborate very closely with a larger fund in this case, Forbian, and that makes a lot of difference to what we can bring to companies that we look at in the sense that we have a very broad network that we can access, that we have a very, not meaning to overstate, but we are quite well-organized professional organization that can support our companies. To do that from a small fund that operates in isolation is simply very difficult. Uh, not only the fact that Forbian may in the end, but this is certainly not a given also invest in our portfolio companies. And that happens now historically in about 25 to 30% of the cases. So 
not, uh, not more than one third at least. It simply provides a, a setting that allows us to really focus on what we do best and that is selecting companies and working with those companies to create value. And then it comes down to selection and co-management or management of these companies for you to ultimately be successful in helping teams build a company. And that is something that I think we also learned along the way. Uh, that is not something I had done before when I started out, at least. And we, of course, have paid our dues, so to speak. We've seen, which you would expect actually in, in, in early stage, we've seen failures uh, to a rate of about 40% in our portfolio historically, which for an early stage fund is pretty decent. But yeah, I think then over the years and by now, as you said, uh, when we started, this is our fourth fund that we're currently investing out of. We hope and expect to uh, start the next fund also relatively quickly this year, at least. That uh, has enabled us to create a position for ourselves where we are indeed, at least in Europe, considered to be one of the, the larger early stage investors with a track record that people are enthusiastic about, so which is great and which is which makes uh, our work a lot of fun. And working with our teams, uh, our companies, is of course uh, something that we we really really treasure and spend a lot of time on. So that is something that uh, yeah is very important to us. And with that context set, now we can continue to drill into the uh, the work with universities and TTOs. And sure. I think that my first question would be: you being pan-European and really. Thus, looking for deals all across Europe, right? How's the balance between deals that come via your connections to universities, research centers, and all that? And then from out of nowhere almost, right? Could you share a bit there? We keep uh, statistics of all these measures, but I, I don't I don't know uh, from the top of our head in, in terms of where do our deals are, are so, where we source our deals from. But I think about one third to half of that is through indeed spontaneous incoming requests. And then we have about 25 to 30% that we get through our contacts with university centers and discussions with TTOs that we have. So it's a considerable amount, but certainly not all. People know where to find us, so that's nice, but we also go out ourselves and that also creates deal flow. I don't think we've ever done the analysis what ultimately ends up in our portfolio and where it actually came from. So that's maybe something we should do. But it's an important part of our deal flow, of course, is the direct interaction with academic institutions. But most of our companies are, of course, a result of work that has been done at research institutes and universities. So most of our companies are built on science or IP that is made out of these organizations. My natural next question is, how do you pick institutions? Meaning for most that are pan-European, there's a gravitation towards certain countries or places where the, the GPs have strong networks and already. So that's why they're coming, their deal flow is primarily coming from there. Yeah. But I imagine for you, given that it's built around institutions, it's slightly, you know, not driven by the country, but more driven by there are some research research institutions that are just pillars in the community. And for that reason, that is where you're focusing. Essentially, we're agnostic where it comes from, right? But either country or, or institute, it doesn't matter to us, essentially. But if you look at the portfolio, you can see, certainly see a trend that our home turf, Benelux, Netherlands, Belgium, Germany and the UK are the other countries where the most, if, if not all of our companies are based. We have a few investments that are actually located in in the US, and um, we can invest uh, for a small part of our portfolio also outside of Europe. But most of the other uh, companies are based in that region. And of course, that obvious reason for that is that is where we find ourselves to be yeah, at most at home, uh, close to uh, geographically, just from a distance point of view, but also 
because we know the people, we know the people that are involved, etc. So that all plays an important role. And the reason we have not invested yet in Spain, for example, is but it's not because we don't see initiatives out of countries like that or France even. It is it, it just hasn't happened yet. But it it may and and essentially uh, as long as we think the science is good and we believe we can work with a team if it's already there if the team has already been established then we'll we'll work with them that's not a problem and i'm curious to then ask when you're then thinking about growth or expansion are you thinking about it as saying okay we're seeing more and more coming out of france or whatever so for that reason we're recognizing that we need to be more present there and we need to then build out the team there the alliances so on and then you add that into your focus more or, or how do you think about that? Because I love, we also run the Super Angel podcast where we're talking to angels and there it's, it's like, yeah. it's natural to the angels that, well, it's their network that's the limiting factor and they don't team up with another angel to then suddenly become part of them. So in that sense, they are limited and not typically stay in their own existing network, but that's not needed necessarily for a fund. So I'm curious to hear how you think about building that out. Yeah, so we, we do that in various manners. So, uh, we, so what we have not done yet is to have team members uh, working out of Germany, France, Spain, Italy, uh, specifically tasked to find deals there. We, we do work with some of the people in Germany that uh, Forbion has in Munich, of course. So that is uh, one way. We also have a number of venture parties in our fund, and we recently were very lucky to have Elena Ritsu join us from Paris, so where she lives. So uh, that will and hopefully grow into possible way to for us to expand our network in, in that location, which is important. There's quite a, a lot going on there, slowly but surely. But that's something that we have discussed before. Same goes for, for example, for the Nordics, uh, where we rely on our relationships with uh, funds like Novo Seeds and, and others. But we do not have people on the ground there. But we do have, by now have some people that are involved in our companies that know the local infrastructure and we do work with them and ask them, you know, if you see something, let us know. We can we can then jump in. So this is how we, by simply expanding our network, are trying to uh, to build also in those geographies where we are not physically present ourselves uh, on a very regular basis. Because as you, because you're right, you, ne- you need to be there uh, sometimes to really pick up the, the best possible opportunities. And that's something that we try to do. But there's a lot going on already in three geographies that we're really focusing on. And, and our team is also limited to what it's, it can do, of course. But we will continue to try and, and also to expand that. Uh, given the geographic scope of the fund, which is pan-European and being supported by European Investment Fund and others, that is something that we certainly strive to do. And then if we take one step further into the funnel of, or the, uh, the entry into a country, uh, or rather the expansion of your deal flow from one place, could you... Try and describe to me how you're present in an ecosystem, right? So when you have your geographies, then you have your universities, your research centers. How do you work with those? Do you, is it purely informal, as you said before, or do you actually have working you know, or, or formalized relationships to them? How, what do you see from the university side? Do they typically try and push for, for formalization or, or are they more you know, <laughs> happy to have it informal? I think most of them are happy to have it informal. There's not been any case that I know of that people really wanted us to come up with a more formal relationship. We recently talked to a large research organization in France and they will just, you know, take it and get to to learn each other a little bit, look at some opportunities, see how things will pan out as a first step. As This is just an example that was quite recent. We do that. You know, if you, once you've worked with an organization, once has spun out a company out of a particular 
uh, institute, people get to know you a little bit. So that is, of course, something that you can build on going forward. And we do try to monitor, fish, you know, go out and visit those universities on a regular basis. So the, in particular, the tech transfer office managers. So we simply come by, talk about the portfolio, our interests, their projects that they may have in their portfolio. And that is, I think, exactly what you would like. You would like to you know, nurture that ecosystem a bit and see what ultimately comes out. People uh, of our team and, and myself, of course, go out to all kinds of events that are organized around venture building or we do presentations at these events. This afternoon, we, I'm going to do a, a presentation with our, two of our team members at the Dutch Cancer Institute. And we, we'll talk to over 30 PhDs and postdocs just about you know what we do, so just to make them aware of what we do. So and this hopefully ultimately will lead to either people interested in industrial career, perhaps even venture, or think about building a company. And they, they may think of us when, when they finally do that. So so all those kind of activities ultimately result in building your your network. And that's that's what we try to do quite actively. And that's something we will we keep on doing for the foreseeable future. I'd love to ask you, Edward, slightly provocative question, <laughs> which is connected to a past episode we did with another GP. And uh, just to put things into context, it's a first-time GP, small fund, very national focus, so very different context from yours. But his take was he's much more focused on working directly with select PhD students and researchers and and et cetera. So people that he or his team has identified as champions and having a direct one-to-one relationship rather than have a relationship with the university or the TTO. And you've been talking quite a bit about TTO office managers, the type of questions you ask, type of relationship you have. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on one approach versus the other. Uh, you know, what do what you think when you hear this? And also, you know, why do you focus on the type of relationships that you are focused on versus others, right? We do both, of course. So it's not that we, we stop at the door at, of the tech transfer office. Ultimately, what is important to us is what is the science about? And then immediately, of course, you need to talk to the actual people that do the work and that the, the inventors or the, the people that have, have done the, the scientific invention and are potentially interested to, to look at the possibility for a spin-out of that particular uh, of that particular idea. So I don't think we do one or the other. We do both. I think it's a smart way, but ultimately most of the European academic environment is such that all these in- investigators or researchers are employed by these universities and universities typically, not in all cases, but typically own the IP, right? So you end up talking to these tech transfer organizations anyway at some point. And whether we enter directly through the investigator or through the door of the tech transfer office, it doesn't really matter to us. So both are fine. If if you have a well-organized tech transfer office that works well with its own researchers, that's very efficient for everybody, right? Certainly for us. and, And sometimes, of course, these organizations... Uh, how do I say this nicely? I'm not completely there yet. So you'll find that out quickly. And there's nothing wrong with that. We'll we'll find a solution. I always tell people that only once during more than 15 years that we're doing this, we have not been able to do a deal because of a tech transfer office discussion that we had. So most of the times we, we find a solution going forward and ultimately... Speak. I am actually very curious to ask you to reflect a bit on why you think that is. And it might be because... You are so big and well-established that a TTO, when they hear from you that, okay, you need to get your terms in order, you need to back off of the IP here or something like that, then they realize, okay, maybe we should listen. Because it's definitely not the average experience with TTOs that they don't stop a deal from happening, really. (laughs) 
Mm, I, I, listen, I'm not saying we, we we didn't have a discussion with them, so we we typically do. <laughs> uh, so so clearly that that is something that we have. Usually we find a solution, and I think one of the views that we have developed over time is, and or over time that we started out with, I would say, is that there needs to be a reasonable agreement for all parties. So we are not entering the discussion saying just give us the IP and walk away and don't ask us anything about it and you'll get nothing. <laughs> that's not that's not our so. Uh, we try to refer to what is industry standard, what we have seen, what, you, what the international standard is, how a lot of universities look at the U.S., for example, and how they operate. We can use all those examples to say, listen, this is what typically is done. This is how it works. This whole discussion, of course, about the fact that, you know, locally invented products ultimately enter the market and people have to pay high prices for that potentially. But there is also a lot of investment going on and a lot of risk along the way, right? So and we are usually at the very beginning of such a venture. So usually there is not much part from the IP. Maybe there's not even a team. So a lot of work still has to be done. And we try to, to come to a mutually acceptable solution and that in general works out well. The frustration maybe that we have is that it may take a lot of time, that your decision-making processes in these organizations may not be so as efficient as you would like. That kind of experiences are there, obviously, right? And depending on the country, it can also be more or less efficient. But usually we work our way through this. And it can take time, And but we have developed, I think, quite a bit of experience there over the years. I have a final question before passing the mic to David. And yeah. that is, you started... You started your journey with an investment from a university. And God knows the LP base can be a very important asset to a VC firm. So I'd love to hear how you think about employing your LP base and putting that together to, to really form a group or community of investors that are valuable to you. And obviously, I'm asking here from the point, you know, that uh, from the point of us also doing LP syndicates with the whole thesis of saying the LP base can be incredibly valuable if you just manage it correctly. Obviously, and, and the LPs that we look for are those that have a long-term view, that understand that this takes a little bit more time, perhaps, than a typical tech investment in terms of ferry creation and exit. And those that also are willing to say to us, if we come in, we also come in for the next fund, and you, if you do your work properly, and also for the fund thereafter. So those are the ideal LPs that you would like to work with. And I think we started out with a relatively diverse LP base, and we still have that. So we have from most all angles that you can think of. So family offices, private individuals, institutional investor, pension funds, down to pharma companies as LP in our fund, which creates you know a very broad LP base, which I think is very healthy for us to, to get all these angles. People ask us questions from very different uh, angles. There's always obviously the financial question. There's also a lot of other things that we get on our plate, but that's how we try to and have built our LP base over the years. So Edward, before going into the quick fire, I'm going to yes. ask something of you, which is I'm going to share a view of mine and I'll ask you to comment on it. And I won't ask you to agree or disagree. I'll just ask you to comment. Mm -hmm. And that is these days with the rise of emerging GPs and deep tech as an area of interest for many LPs, I personally see a lot of deep tech or computer science focused investors dabbling more and more into like health tech life sciences, in some cases, like even biotech investing, often like the crossover between AI, ML and biotech, whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At one end, I fear it's a bit kind of these GPs going a bit all over the place. On the other hand, like the crossover is, is actually really exciting, right? So I, I really find it exciting where AI and ML meet 
biotech, the, the, the doors that that opens is incredible. And one of our first LP tickets actually ended up doing an investment like that, which I love, right? And so my reflection here is the lines dividing tech, deep tech, and biotech are becoming more and more blurry. And it is something interesting on how it informs the strategy of D and, and the approach of deep tech investors, but also biotech investors alike. So I'd love to hear your comments and or reflections on that. First of all, maybe good to note that we haven't really ventured into this yet. So we are interested and we will probably. Uh, so that's not, the, that's not the point. I think there's a big difference between sort of typical biotech and tech investments in general. And so what I fear sometimes if I read all this is that the ultimate goal of these companies if that verges towards, you know, really product development, and I see investors, uh, syndicates there, well, we haven't heard of or, or are not so experienced in that field, I think they're going to have to go to a significant learning curve. And that is, in a way, a bit scary. So I think maybe the best to look out for is these, if, if you are interested in these companies, is to build this and build syndicates that can work on these companies from different angles and that try to find a common understanding, but at the same time bring in sufficient expertise to make the proper choices along the way. Uh, some of these companies may be more verged towards service-oriented business and, and simply generating income based on that. And that's totally fine. But if you think about product development, pharma, diagnostics, or, or all that brings on a layer of complication, I think, that most of the tech investors have no clue about. And that is, in general, a bit of a risky step to, to make. So think hard before you do so and maybe team up with people that have gone through these processes before so that you know where you're going. I love that. I completely agree. Thank you for sharing it. Sure. Last section of the interview is a quick fire round, and that's when I'll ask you a couple of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. Well, we'll see if I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you are. First question. This might be actually a very easy one for you. And that is what areas, technologies or sectors excite you the most, but that you don't see people around you getting that excited about? What I think is really exciting is that there is a lot of new developments in antimicrobial resistance and all that. And that there's very limited interest from the venture community to dive into that because of the commercial outlook of these products it excites me because I think there's a big need. There is a very significant need. A lot of people talk about it, but very little is yep. being done. And so I'm in a way concerned and we hope to contribute in the future in one way or the other. So that's that's certainly a field that uh, that deserves more interest, people, I would say. It's a bit, it's a big a big issue for healthcare systems as well, generally speaking. Exactly. Actually, so yeah. that's a really interesting yeah. area for sure. Second question: What are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are fundraising for their funds in this gruesome environment these days? Well, the main and most important tip is stick to it. Don't give up. Uh, just do your work <laughs> whenever possible. Be creative. Also, try to find other LPs that other people may not think of. And the main thing is, of course. Focus on your track record and try to to build that because that's that's the key parameter that LPs will look at along the way. We as an existing fund uh, suffer that from that as well, of course, So like anybody yeah. else. So I understand that it may not be possible if you're just starting out, but first-time funds, of course, I think in this environment will will be very difficult to start. That's my, that's my guess, yeah. Third and final question, Edward. What is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned in venture? Okay, I'll, I'll have an answer for you. It's, it's maybe a little bit too obvious, but uh, <laughs> a lot of people have a background in tech and science and, and so forth. But maybe if you, if you look in, in venture, the actual the interaction between individuals is super important, right? So that may be a bit counterintuitive to people that focus on the tech and the, and the content side. But 
to make companies work also from the VC side or when you're in a board, a representation in a company, those interactions are super important. And maybe it's a little bit obvious uh, what I'm saying here, but uh, it, it is something that, that I've learned at least over the years that I, we need to give a lot of attention. And uh, that is something that we try to do on a day-to-day basis. I don't think it is as obvious as you uh, <laughs> you you made it sound, or at least... <laughs> I always say that there's a difference between knowing something and really knowing something, uh, meaning that th- it takes years to experience something to the level where you really understand the importance of something. You can read it on a paper that the emotional side of investing is important, and then you can say, yeah, I know that. But it's only after some real yeah. experiences that you realize, okay, so that's what that meant. Erwin, thanks so much for joining us today. This was a blast. I am sure that this will bring many people insights into how you can actually build a world-class fund that is really tapping into the best networks around a biotech. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. 